Now on Documentary on News Talk, exploring the many different facets of Jewish identity in Ireland with producer Barbara Flood. This is Jewish Ireland. I'm here in Portobello, Dublin, at the Irish Jewish Museum. Hi, I'm Edwin Alkin. I'm the chairman of the museum and volunteer, and I'm here to speak to you today. You're very, very welcome. Our museum is set in what used to be the Jewish quarter of Dublin. And uh, it's in an old synagogue, which closed in the 1960s, lay empty for many years, and then opened as a museum in 1985. It's a real old-school building, packed full of photos and maps of the Jewish cemeteries, synagogues, rabbis and members of the various Jewish communities over the years. Who are these guys? They're just little ornaments of um, an old European man, Jewish man and his wife. And um, so an artist representation of a, of a little old couple, as they would have looked in Russia or in uh, Poland, mm-hmm. uh, living in a small village, uh, quite humble, and um, and so on. It's just, they're quirky things, and somebody <laughs> must have given them as a gift to the museum. Although small numbers of Jewish people came to Ireland earlier on, the first permanent community arrived in the 16th century, as refugees from the Catholic Inquisition in Spain and Portugal. In 1555, William Ananas, a Portuguese Jewish refugee, became mayor of Yall in County Cork. Are you looking at the plate or the book? The book, yeah. The book. The book is a reproduction of the oldest Sephardic Haggadah in the world. Haggadah is the, the little booklet that is, prayer book that is read at Pesach time, Passover time. And this one is known as the Sarajevo Haggadah. And if, as I said, the oldest Sephardic Haggadah in the world. It has the name Sarajevo because that's where it is living now. However, it was written and drawn in Barcelona in 1350. And when the Jews had to leave Spain and Portugal in 1492, I'm guessing it went with them. Every page is illuminated and very interesting. They've authenticated the paper to look old and parchment-like. And it it happens to be open at the page which says Pesach, which is Passover on the right-hand side, and Matzah. So Matzah is the special food that is eaten on Passover. So it's, it's been there since this Passover as a, a demonstration. The Jewish people have been expelled from France, Germany, Hungary and other countries on many occasions throughout the 12th to 15th centuries. And they were also forcibly exiled from Ireland under the British ruler Edward I, who banned Jewish people in 1290. This is a constant thread winding through the history of Jewish people in Ireland, with the largest influx being in the 19th century with the pogroms and persecutions in Eastern Europe and Russia. The new community that arrived here, fleeing persecution, discriminatory laws and practices, and a very, very good reason to leave. And they were lucky, of course, they were, because when the Germans went on the march of the Second World War, um, about 190,000 Jews were murdered in Lithuania. So uh, 
our ancestors were lucky to have left earlier. So when they came to uh, this part of the world, they settled here, and, and particularly in Dublin. So between 1850 and 1900, the Jewish population went from 450 people from the census to 3,000. At one stage, the community had about nine or ten kosher shops, and they were on Clembrassel Street uh, for, for kosher meat, which is not far from here, very much a Jewish street with Jewish businesses, butcher shops, baker shops, candlestick makers, you know, bookshops, uh, you, you name it, every kind of shop. And the people from this community, this, they, they established their businesses down there. One of them was the Bretzel, which I think you're going to go to, yes. which is a bread shop with a very distinguished tradition, producing mm. special bread. And um, one by one, those shops closed as the population dwindled in size until there was none left. But the last shop was this lady here, Bela Ehrlich, and she ran the last kosher butcher on Clinbrassel Street in Dublin until around about 2001 when she died. Edwin Alkin shows me some beautiful paintings by Estella Solomons, two of which were borrowed by the National Gallery for a recent exhibition. And they borrowed this picture from us, and it's her father, her mother and her sister in the garden, sunny day. The curator borrowed that picture and she borrowed this picture here, which is Rabbi Gudansky. It's still in its wrapping, as you can see. Mm. Estella herself was a suffragette. She was in Cumann Moon and fighting for women's rights and for equality and so on, and, and in, in art as well. And so with the uprising in 1916, she hid arms and ammunition in her parents' garden. The curator knew the story, and that's why she picked that picture there, because <laughs> that, maybe that was the garden that yeah, was yeah. it. And then the <laughs> rabbi, so the, the story is, which the curator knew, I wasn't too familiar with it, I didn't, I didn't quite realise why she was picking it. Michael Collins was on the run, and he's supposed to have hopped over the wall in, in, into the back garden of Rabbi Gadansky's house and spent the night there while the soldiers were scouring the streets looking for him. The next morning... They dressed him up in Jewish garb, like a hat and a black coat. <laughs> and he, he mingled with the other Jewish people going to the synagogue and evaded capture. She knew the story, and so she had to have Rabbi Gudansky. This was her studio in the early 1900s, where she painted most of her paintings and the, and the patriots. When a patriot was on the run, they hid out in her studio, which gave her an excellent opportunity to paint their portraits, because they couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> And uh, so that's, a, that's her studio, what it looked like. There's also lots of various objects documenting the different Jewish communities in Ireland throughout history. Uh, these are just some of the traditional occupations that the Ju uh, Jewish community were engaged in. Uh, again, they're mostly the immigrants. The, the older community was like this family here. They, they'd been here 50 years earlier, or maybe 60 years earlier. Some of the other families had gone back and they left a, a mark in some ways, but not in the same way as when the population had a, you know, greatly increased and everybody was struggling to get their foot on the ladder and so on. And they're in pharmacies, they're in tailoring, they're in manufacturing, they're in um, delicatessens and uh, trying a taxi business, antique business, photography business. Mm -hmm. So that we tell all these little stories here. And they were very interesting times because Ireland was going through uh, insurrection, uprisings, and civil wars, and so on. 
Edwin unlocks the synagogue upstairs, perfectly preserved since it closed so in the 1960s. There was, there, were, there was seating there for the ladies in an Orthodox synagogue. The men and women sit separate. And this is where the, this is called the bima. This is where the service is conducted. And in, in the front of the synagogue is the Ark, the Holy Ark, which contains this, the Torah scrolls. Um, every arc will look like. And the, here we have four scrolls. These have not been used, in my opinion, since the 1960s. Two of them are very old. They're so old they cannot be used anymore because they have to be perfect. And if they're not perfect and they can't be used you, you dispose of them by burying them in a respectful way in a, in a graveyard. But anyway, these are resting here in the, in the museum. So um, my opinion is, is that they were brought from Lithuania back in the 1880s or 1890s or 1900, and they were old then. Yeah. And it's very restful. People come up here and they feel the restfulness of it, and yeah. they sit down and they contemplate and they feel that it has a kind of a, a sincerity about it. So we have banners just giving a bit of Lithuanian history, some famous Jewish figures in, in uh, modern times or Middle Ages to modern times, Jewish journeys, what happened to Jews living in, in Europe. They're constantly on the move, moving for when, when things would get bad in one place, they go somewhere else and they're constantly on the move. And you can see one of the arrows brings them to Ireland. This is the oldest... Um, exhibit in the museum. This is a a, a a curtain. We call it a parochet, and it used to hang in front of the Holy Ark in a synagogue in Dublin in 1782. And that's our oldest artifact. Wow. So this is an exhibition which we gave. This is the 75th anniversary of 100 Czechoslovak orphans who came to Dublin in 1948. And they're brought here by Dr. Solomon Schoenfeld. He was a rabbi living in England, a professor and a rabbi. And before the war, he was involved in the kinder transports, getting Jewish children out of Germany, bringing them to Britain. And his organization managed to save 10,000 German children in that way. They couldn't save the rest because they were not, it wasn't possible to save them. Okay. After the war, he went back to Europe looking for survivors. And he found... He found a lot of survivors, but one group of them from Czechoslovakia, he wanted them to come to Ireland because the community here said, we'll look after them, send them here. And they applied to the Irish government for permission to bring them. Long story short, it took Rabbi Herzog and Robert Briscoe to convince de Valera that this was a good deed and to allow it to happen. And de Valera overruled the Department of Justice and they came but only for one year. A relic of the Holocaust. It's a Torah scroll and a, a Megillah, which is a, another sacred book, and maybe other sacred books. It, the Germans entered Strasbourg in France. They were destroying all the synagogues and burning Torahs and books in the street. And a French woman, when nobody was looking, put the fire out and brought this into her house and kept it in a box for over 40 years. And when the museum opened, she or her daughter, I wasn't i wasn't around, she or her daughter was in Ireland, came into the museum, 
and then said, we've got something for you, and they brought this in. So it's a, it's a relic of the, the show of the Holocaust and the destruction. Now, this is a picture of the great synagogue in Strasbourg, which I'm pretty sure was destroyed. So these scrolls could have come from there, or they came from another synagogue in Strasbourg. There would have been a few synagogues, but this is the embodiment of it. Hatred and destruction, which was which we st- were still living with. Now, in the school term, we, we take schools. We get the uh, okay. schools. So yeah. They're learning religion, and they come here, and we give them a talk on Jewish practices and Jewish culture, Jewish religion. We answer their questions, and um, if they have time, they look around the museum. The Irish Jewish Museum is open every Sunday from 10.30 to 12.30 and they'll facilitate private tours and school tours if you contact them directly. You can find all their info at jewishmuseum.ie. A huge thanks to Edwin Alkin for showing me around. Jews have been here since the time of the Normans. Jews are not strangers here, but they remain, they remain to be uh, othered. In, in a lot of ways, um, and that, that to me is very interesting. Is, is why, after a thousand years, why why is there still this this um, this othering? Dr. Melanie Brown is a composer, and she lectured in Trinity College on Jewish culture and identity in Ireland. There is still, unfortunately, this very strong discourse in some areas that say, well, if you're not white and Catholic, then you're not really Irish. You're a bit Irish, yeah, but yeah. you don't tick all the boxes. Yeah, and, sure. and that, that is very problematical. Dr. Brown is a member of the Orthodox community in Dublin. Her family originally came from Lithuania and Latvia, but it was something her grandmother was very vague about. There's a certain amount of rumour. Was it actually Estonia? Was it actually the Ukraine? You know, there's always a certain amount of um, ambiguity about that because she would never tell, or she would tell, but she does a different story every time. But she, in fact, her parents migrated to Liverpool when she was a baby. So wherever she was born, whatever part of the Russian Empire she was born in, um, she was in fact born to Liverpool, I think, when she was about six months old. So she was very much an English, an English woman. Yeah, yeah, because there has been a lot of um, links between Ireland, the Jewish community in Ireland and in other countries, especially England. Well, mainly yeah. the UK, because yeah. mainly they migrated here at around about the same time, and a lot of them came from the same places and the same villages. And you find particularly around the north of England, there's a lot of commonality between the Irish experience and also where the Irish Jews came from, you know, largely the same few places. I mean, it is important to make this point that um, the chief rabbi at the time, uh, Rabbi Herzog, made the very definite point of severing his formal contacts with the British Jewish community at the time of independence so that there would be, in his in his vision, there would be a separate, a totally separate Irish-Jewish identity. Um, and, and he did that deliberately and in a calculated way to ensure that that happened, so that, you know, the community wouldn't continuously be just just another just another branch of the, uh, you know, of the London United Synagogues or something, which it could well have been. The Jewish community here occupies an unusual position that we've got very close contacts um, with the Protestant community. Because certainly in Dublin, um, the Catholic schools didn't allow um, Jewish children to come in. In my first school, the uh, science school on Bushy Park Road, which is a church-born school, 
and there was quite a size, not enormous, but there was a fair cohort of Jewish kids in there um, when I was there. You know, the Jewish community, it did expand in, in rather a big bump, you know, at, at around about the turn of the last century, you know, within sort of 10 years either way. Um, and you found the Protestants were much more welcoming. I asked Dr Brown how she'd judge the Irish response to people fleeing the Holocaust and our failure to act to help Jewish people at that time. I'm afraid it's very hard not to sit in judgment of that, particularly when you consider what Britain did. And I mean, Britain was overcrowded and obviously had their own problems, but they managed to take in so many. Um, and we took in really virtually none. And those that we took in, we sent away again as soon as we could, with the vast majority of them. So I'm afraid there's really no, there's no way of putting a, a good spin on this. This was a really, really quite a blot on, you know, on, on the new state. So I mean, all of these exchanges, these Doyle exchanges at the time, they were all minuted. They were very chilling. The things that came up, oh, we, won't, we don't want more Jews here. We don't want to change the fabric of our society. You know, they're bad and they're evil and they will take over because they always take over. and. You know, they will corrupt us and, oh yeah, yeah, this is bad stuff. It, it, it could have been said in the 15th century. Dr Brown has done extensive work on an oral history project housed at Trinity College Library, where she talked to many of the old Jewish community in Dublin. You know, some of the more valuable things were to do with anti-Semitism, for instance, because you find that people of a certain age will say, no, there was no anti-Semitism here, I never experienced it. But people who were a little bit younger or a little bit older said, yeah, this was terrible, and particularly the years uh, leading up to the war, like in the, in the mid-30s. And the anti-Semitism there was exactly the same as it was across the rest of Europe. And that's why people moved out of that circular road. It had nothing to do, or very little to do with uh, social mobility and everything to do with, well, they didn't want to be in a place that was so heavily associated with Jews because look what's going on in other places with districts that are heavily Jewish. Well, we, we don't want this. And that, that formed the majority of the dispersal. Dr. Brown is a member of the Interfaith Forum, which brings together members from the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Baha'i, Hindu and Buddhist communities. You know, it's it's not religious based, and you know we don't sit and discuss each other's theology. Though there are groups that do that, it's the Council of Christians and Jews and the Three Faiths Forum, things like that. I mean, they do, they do have quite interesting faith based uh, discussions. Um, and then you know we do a certain amount of public engagement, and then we we advise people in the HSC, and we advise people in the Garda Shikhuna about you know things like cultural competence and what to do and what not to do in certain situations and. And it's the same with not all aspects of the HSC, but some corners of the HSC mm-hmm. are saying the same thing. And particularly, you know, now that not all hospitals are, are quite so, you know, Catholic-based. Do you practice at all? Or you, you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I do practice. I say not as strictly as, say, when I was a child. Yeah. I mean, I'll drive on the Sabbath, for instance. I keep quite strictly kosher, and I mean okay. that's not easy in Ireland, yeah. and that really isn't easy at all anymore. But because um, I think some things are very ingrained, and you know there are some practices that give you a lot of comfort. I got out of the habit of going to the synagogue during lockdown, as indeed I think a lot of people got out of the habit of going to lots of places of worship, and I don't often do that anymore. Um, 
you know, I, I would have to say that I would question my belief a lot. So, um, and that's the other interesting thing about Judaism is that a lot of it is culture-based. It's not necessarily based on, on the level of your um, your belief. Um, I, I think that is a, one of the really most interesting aspects of Judaism altogether. Is, is um, And it also is, it is entirely autonomous. It's up to you. Mm. Yeah, you believe this or that or, you know. You're still Jewish though, even if, yeah. Yeah, but a lot yeah. of that has got to do with identity as well because, I mean, mm. there are people who... Yeah, okay, they will really try and divest themselves of all aspects of this. But you'll find, well, nobody else will. Everybody else will see you that way. You might not yourself. You might think, oh, I'm going to fit in. I'm not going to do all this <laughs> stupid crap anymore, this old-fashioned stuff. I mean, it's irrelevant to the modern world. But you'll find everybody else will still see you mm, in that way. Yeah. I mean, my brother had that problem. Um, I mean, my brother doesn't practice, you know. Mm. Um, you know, stop practicing. I mean, he was, you know, very, you know, when he was... You know, as soon as he could, I suppose, really. And he joined a particular political party, which I won't mention. And he found almost immediately, he found a, a, a crazy amount of anti-Semitism directed at him. He didn't regard himself as Jewish, but they did. Crucially, they did. And I mean, this is this is what you see. I mean, going back to 1930s Germany, when, you know, you've had very, very assimilated and acculturated Jews, a lot of whom didn't see themselves as Jewish at all. But God, Hitler did, mm. and the rest of European society did. So, you know, a lot, that's the thing about identity, because I taught identity politics for a long time in Trinity. And this is, you know, I think that the core thing about personal identity is you've no control. You might see yourself one way, but you've no control over the way the others see you. None at all. But, I mean, I think that the Jewish community here has gained an awful lot from from being here. I think that growing up in a very small minority in somewhere with such a large um, hegemony, uh, you know, I, I think there's certain advantages and, you know, you learn how to negotiate these things and it makes you much more sensitive to the needs of others. I, I gave a talk last year for the Festival of History of the Devon City Council. It was on Holocaust memorialization, and not particularly regarding uh, Steenberg family. And there were you know, there were very few Irish people that were lost in the Holocaust, but this woman, Etty Steenberg, was. She left Ireland and got married to a Belgian guy and they were taken. You know, there's a lot of information out there about her, but one of the more distressing things I've seen now of, you know, online responses is, well, Steenberg, that's not an Irish name. Why would we bother? Why would we bother about that? And I think that this is a real problem, that until we try and normalise the fact that people that are not necessarily called O'Connor can actually be Irish. Delhi 613 is the first kosher Jewish deli in Dublin in 50 years. 613 is the number of commandments in the Torah, and it's run by Rabbi Zalman Lent and his wife Rivki Lent. Simon Wolfson and his wife Rachel are also visiting the day. They can tell you why Jewish people might leave Ireland, if you want to know. Oh, you don't want to hear that. You lived here, like you lived in in Dublin or in Dublin, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like? Great. Yeah. Uh, we we loved growing up here. Yeah, yeah. And we were married here, and we stayed here the first two and a half years. So we we lived here, yes. and then we moved to Manchester in England. We had a small Jewish community, but it were like more young people than there are now. I think. It, would you say? Yeah. And now it's changed. It's yeah, changed. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, Celtic Tiger was was great for the country, but it it, it kind of gave a, many in the Jewish community kind of a a way to leave. 
you know, they were able, they, they, you know, they sold up and moved to places which had bigger Jewish communities and Jewish amenities. So even though they, like, they really have a strong love for, for Ireland and it's in their heart, but, you know, they wanted kind of a bigger Jewish milieu for the, for the children to grow up in. To partner or to do different things. And but it's great, it's great to have this. Oh, it's ab absolutely yeah. fantastic, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I haven't eaten it yet, so okay, you, yeah, have to come, you have to come back afterwards. I have to say if the salt beef sandwich was good or not. You see. Join us after the break for more about Jewish Ireland, and I continue chatting to Rabbi Lent and his wife Rifki. This is Documentary on News Talk, and this is Jewish Ireland. Rabbi Zalman Lent and his wife Rifki continue to tell me about Jewish food and the importance of having a kosher deli in Dublin. Having kosher food accessible is a bit of a game changer for, for orthodox or observant Jewish people because it's not, it's not about the flavours. They're not looking for Jewish flavours of food. They're looking for, if you're a kosher observant travel, tourist or traveller, you can't eat you know, in any of the other establishments and you have to find a kosher venue to eat. So um, many, if, you're, if, if it's religious or observant Jewish families, they're going to be looking to travel to a place where they can get easy access to kosher food. Um, and so this is, kind of helps put it on the map that people can come here. They don't have to worry about food. They can come, you know, just plan their trips and their travels and they know that food's easily accessible, kosher food. I think what's different here about other kind of Jewish venues in different places is that we, because there's such a small Jewish population, so we would only be able to open one or two days a week, really, to feed the, you know, the local Jewish community. But um, because we've opened it to the public and the food's of, of a high quality, we've got a great you know, team of chefs and the food is good. So in that way, it's a bit different than other venues. Where it's, not, it's not all Jewish clientele. It's actually mostly, probably mostly non-Jewish clientele that are coming through, which, is, which I think is, is great, especially for community relations. I think it's good. Like salt beef is kind of very typical Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine, which is Jews come from Europe originally. Um, but then we also try and, you know, we have food that originates in Iraq, like the amber sauce. Um, and then we have all that kind of very Mediterranean. So that's like all the Sephardic Jews. Um, so we, we kind of try and have a wide range of, you know, Jewish food is kind of, from where, where Jews have settled all over the world. Um, so it's really kind of a melting pot of different things. It's the flavours of home, which is also important. So as you, if you look through the shelves here, you'll see products that maybe there are similar ones in Ireland, but it's like specific flavours that people are, are used to. And even if, when it's like the fish products or the liver products, so yes, it's similar to a liver pate, but it's just a slightly different taste that, that Jewish people would have grown up, you know, kind of used to. So that, that's the part that, which is open to the public, and we love to see all the different people that are, that are coming through. And then the, the back section of the building is a Jewish community centre. So this is where we'd be having you know, community meals, um, any kind of festivities for the holidays, that, that kind of thing. It's a gathering place for, for the Jewish community. So we had last week, we had a summer camp running for two weeks um, for kids. Um, so, you know parents are always happy to have like something Jewish for their kids to do because you know a lot of them might be going to non-Jewish schools maybe and they're not getting too much Jewish experiences um, and then holiday parties we have for, like different we have for families and then we have for young singles um, we do Friday night dinners every week where people can come and meet other Jewish people 
That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not, it, it is, I mean, I know, as we were saying, the numbers are growing a little bit, but it's still a very small community compared to places in England, for instance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so you wouldn't really have kind of those, there's not really that much else if you're like, let's say you're, you know, somebody in your 20s and you're coming and working here for a tech company and you want to meet other Jewish people, there's not like that many ways to do that. So it's, um, and, you know, and people want to, they, they might miss their home, their Friday night dinners at home, but they can come here and hopefully have something similar to what they get at home. While the deli's only been open a few months, Rabbi Lent and Rifki have been in Ireland over 20 years and they run Chabad Ireland. So, so the shop and the deli are all part of, of the charity, part of the, of the non-profit. And uh, what Chabad represents, it's an outreach Jewish organization, um, so educational, charitable, um, helping anyone from the Jewish community that's looking to make contact in any way. They may be looking to study, they may be looking for advice, they may be looking for support. Um, and, of course, there's lots of cross-community um, the interfaith questions, all those kind of things. So it's kind of a contact point for that. I mean, a lot of the times, the people who le- the people from the Jewish community who left Ireland, they didn't just leave for economic reasons. They wanted their children to maybe be in a much bigger Jewish environment, like, say, find a Jewish spouse or whatever, rather than hear it. Um, so I, I don't know. It's very hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, this community has always been... Um, there's always been new people coming into it. I, I don't know if maybe people don't see that that much but I think there's always been influxes of different types of Jews coming and that's kind of been the history of the Jewish people. The long-standing Jewish community that have been here you know that came here from Lithuania originally that community is is very small and and shrinking and the the most of the current Jewish community are people young people that are here working in the tech field so that there is a like a been a massive change in in the makeup of the community. The, the function of the centre is, is a meeting point. It's a meeting point for the young, for the old, for the new community, the old community. Every, you know, food is the great equaliser. Everyone sit together, have some food, chat, meet one another. So um, in that sense, it's, it's very rewarding to see that happening. <laughs> so you're eating there, like. <laughs> Well, was it as good as you thought? Excellent, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you guys Hello, it's well for you. Nice to you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll get your chair. That's yeah, really food. Do you want to give your name? Oh. Anna. Anna, nice to meet you. Um, what's it like having somewhere like this, I suppose, after so long? When it's wonderful. It's really yeah. wonderful. I, I mean, we can meet people. It's, it's lovely, especially since COVID, too. We haven't been out that much. But it really is a wonderful facility. We haven't been able to, no. Um, we're not that close, and um, so no, and we're not inclined to go out on a Friday night. It's just the two of us, my husband and myself. But it, sometime we will, when they have things during the week. Yeah, yeah. We hope to, yes. And the food is good. Oh, excellent, yes. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. Not at all, Thank you're you. welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I spoke to you earlier and you're still I'm <laughs> Sorry, still easy, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was it like? Excellent, yeah. Yeah. Top salt beef sandwich, yeah. Cool, cool. Excellent, really very nice. And we tried the hummus and shawarma, and we've tried falafel. Mm, nice. And we tried a latke that's man-sized, very large latke. Uh, so, have you seen the latkes oh, before? Wow. It's it's, oh, it's like a deep-fried potato cake. Yeah, very very nice. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes with apple sauce, so it's very good. Oh, I won't at the moment. We're going to get some takeaway because I'm going to be somebody else I'll get two. Which one are you with? One, I just have one. Please do. And here, do I put a dip in that? Yes. Sold, isn't it? Sold. 
Mm. Aren't they delicious? That's good. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I bought them to take home one day and I ate them all in the car before I got home. Mm. Remember that? We came back for more. They're lovely. These are gorgeous too. I came in for two. Yeah, they're lovely. And they, they heat up very well. They're absolutely gorgeous, aren't they? Delhi 613 is open every day except Saturday on Upper Rathmines Road. And you can also order online at 613.ie. Just to mention as well that if you're in the area, the Bretzel Bakery also makes delicious breads and food. It's one of the oldest Jewish bakeries in Dublin, there since 1870, and it's up on Lennox's Street in Portobello. Outside of Dublin, the Jewish community is even smaller, but there's always been a Jewish presence in Cork. So I've been here for 35 years and I've spent the last six years researching the Cork Jewish community, uh, communities, I should say, so the older community and I'm part of the new community. Musician Ruthie Lax has created two documentaries out of this research. Cork Jewish Culture Virtual Walk and Memories of a Jewish Childhood. So my Jewish grandmother came from Poland and she had moved to Manchester and later Liverpool in England. But I thought, well, what if my Jewish grandmother was from Cork? Because that's where I live. So, you know, what, what, would that, what was going on in that generation? And when I started researching my grandmother's generation in Cork... So when I started researching Jewish Cork of the late 1800s, early 1900s, every time I turned a corner in Cork City, somebody had a story or pointed to a building that was related to the old community or a bridge or um, something that used to be a clothes shop or something that used to be a carpet shop or told me about um, the dentist they used to go to who was Jewish. Klezmer is Jewish wedding music from Eastern Europe from 1700s, 1800s. So it's wedding music, it's lively, it's, there's also slow songs, there's improvised um, melodies. And I mean, Klezmer music probably also, you know, more or less died out, but has been massively revived in America and that spread then to England and Europe. And there's a bit of Klezmer going on in Ireland as well. So some of the klezmer tunes are called things like bulgar, and there's a dance, a bulgar, and many tunes are called Turkish bulgar or Romanian bulgar, and the word bulgar even maybe bulgar, Bulgarian, and then you've got hora, so you've got Romanian hora, or a, I don't know if that was Latvian hora, but you'd have different, yeah, so there probably is differences depending, but the basic scales seem to be based on um, a similar thing. Do you want me to play you a klezma scale? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay so that's the Fregish scale. 
grew up in a religious family and modern religious um, but you know as you do come to your own conclusions um, as we were encouraged to come to our own conclusions by our parents um, so I didn't stay being religious and I was at some point on the road in England living in a truck and um, it was a bit tough there with Maggie Thatcher sort of reigning in any attempt at free expression and some friends had moved to Ireland and said come over here it's lovely there's like green fields and purple mountains and it's lovely the dogs can run around you'll love it <laughs> so I came to have a look oh, and stayed cool out of the rat race <laughs> out of the rat race I really as soon as I arrived here I still remember standing on this road somewhere in Kerry near the county bounds thinking oh my god I can do what I want here musically mm. Did it matter to you when you came here that there wasn't a huge Jewish community or was that not? No. I, at that point of my life, when I was 22, I really wasn't bothered about a Jewish community. I had really kind of left that fold behind. Um, you know, I was always going back to my parents, you know, yeah. and visiting, of course. So, you know, there was always a bit of Judaism around me. And especially after my two sons were born, they're both Kerry men. Um, so after they were born, you know, I sort of felt like they should know a bit about their legacy even if it's I don't practice the religion they should know what's there so they can make a choice what they want to do with their lives. Ruti shows me her Shabbat candles and a menorah. Yeah so we call that a Chanukiah oh, so that's a really so interesting okay. thing actually yeah but um yeah and there's Chanukia. my Chanukiah yeah. yeah so there's my mum's sort of travel Shabbat candles there and there's a goblet as well uh, for wine on Shabbat. And there's a little bag with some... I'll show you this. Mm, smell that. Mm, is it yeah, cloves? It's cloves, yeah. So when Shabbat is finished... Uh, there's cinnamon there as well, I think. Oh. When Shabbat finishes, you have a, Shabbat, a special plaited candle that you light and then you smell the, something that smells nice. Oh. And that's at the end of the Sabbath. I guess there's just so many different kind of um, levels. I mean, you've met Chabad. You've also met some people that came through the Orthodox synagogue in Dublin. Um, I was, you know, we went to Orthodox shul, Orthodox synagogue in Liverpool, which might have been a bit of a different experience from Dublin even and from Cork. Um, how do you define religious? So, you know, growing up, we would define religious as going to synagogue, not eating non-kosher food, not switching on lights on Saturday or doing any kind of work. For somebody else, religious might mean believing in God, praying occasionally. Mm. <laughs> you know, so I think even that word religious has so many different meanings to different people. Um, I mean, I think what I really like about where I'm at now is that although I'm an atheist and don't like doing, I don't really have anything to do with services because it feels very disingenuous if I'm, you know, using God's name when I don't think there's a God. But I have a lot of respect for anyone for whatever beliefs they have, you know. I mean, the funny thing about being Jewish is you can't really get away from it. So even when I was 18 and left home and then, you know, went on the road and really had nothing to do with being Jewish at all for many years, it kind of, 
it's just in there still, you know, it's something that's still in there and, you know, most people I know who are Jewish are nowadays, most people I know who are Jewish aren't religious at all, but there's just still something there, you know, which we feel part of. Ruti also does walking tours of Jewish Cork, drawing on her research and her music. So I just bring people around the places in Cork City that had a connection to the Jewish community. Um, so there's a couple of bridges and there's the old synagogue. We can't go in. It's a Seventh-day Adventist church, but we can be outside and talk about the synagogue. And I can sing a couple of songs or a little bit of a melody um, a nigun that might have been sang in a shul, which is the Yiddish word for synagogue. Um, and then we go to what's called Jewtown, which is Hibernian buildings where a lot of Jewish people lived when they first arrived in the 1880s, 1890, 1900. And we talk about um, stories that have been shared with me from there. Um, and we look at Shalom Park, where there's um, Maddie Leach's exhibit with the, the lamps, there are nine lamps and eight of them are lit every night of the year and one night of the year the ninth lamp lights and that's on the eighth day of the festival of Hanukkah. So that's always a lovely event for Cork people and Jewish people. Every time I go there somebody comes up to me and shares either a memory from about the Jewish community or just says how 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 happy they are that they live in the place where there used to be a Jewish community. Even people who've just moved to the area. One guy just started working in a, in a shop there and said, oh, it's so great to hear this music because, you know, it keeps something Jewish alive about this area. In the past year, there's also been another Holocaust organisation set up in Ireland, Holocaust Awareness Ireland, by the art dealer Oliver Sears, whose mother was a Holocaust survivor. And the long-standing Holocaust Education Ireland continues to run events to combat anti-Semitism and to remember the events of the Shoah. Recently as well, University College Cork set up its first Jewish society. And in March this year, Dublin-based human rights lawyer Saul Wolfson set up Jackie, Jewish Arts and Culture Ireland, under the umbrella of the Jewish Representative Council of Ireland. And uh, we launched it this year in February in Cork, in the Cork Arts Theatre. And we had my own group, Fresh Air Collective, playing. We had Sabri Handel, who's a young Argentinian singer. We had Istvan Varanach, who's a, a fantastic violinist from Hungary. And various other musicians. And Lenny Abrahamson. Oh, wow, the director. The director came and talked about his uh, Jewish childhood a little bit and plans for the future um, in interview with Saul Wolfson. So, yeah, it was just a really, really lovely event, a packed house. Thank you so 
You're very welcome. It's been lovely talking to you, Barbara. Rudy Lax's Irish Klezmer Suite is due out later this year, and you can catch both of her documentaries on YouTube. Cork Jewish Culture Virtual Walk and Memories of a Jewish Childhood. And you can contact the Cork Jewish Community at info at corkjewishcommunity.ie. Also, I'd just like to mention a book called Jewtown by Simon Lewis, which is published by Doira Press. It's a really beautiful collection that really gets inside the experiences and the lives of those first Jewish immigrants that came to Cork. A huge thanks to everyone who talked to me for this documentary. Edwin Alkin in the Jewish Ireland Museum, Dr Melanie Brown, Rabbi Zalman Lent and Rifki Lent in Delhi 613, and their customers Anna and Simon and Rachel Wolfson, and to Ruthie Lax of the Cork Jewish community. Thanks also to Ruthie and her band Fresh Air Collective for some of the music you've heard throughout the programme. Ireland was produced by Barbara Flood and was supported by Commission Naman under the Sound and Vision scheme with the television licence fee. For more documentaries, visit Newstalk.com.